year. This evening we are going to look at Second Samuel chapter seven. Second Samuel chapter seven. Let's join together in prayer as we begin. Our Father, it is a year of grace, 2010. Grace that came so long ago in the person of your Son, filling up the fullness of your gracious revelation, which had been disclosed since the beginning of Adam's fall. Thank you that in every era of the history of your unfolding plan of redemption, that act of yours has been gracious. Never in eternity could we commend ourselves to you by any imagined merit, no merit of any kind in any time since Adam's fall. We stand ever and always upon the grace of God and never upon our alleged merit. And so help us this evening as we examine this wonderful passage to keep in mind that there's nothing here that makes David worthy. All of the worthiness is in you and has been from all eternity. We bless you, for you are worthy of all honor and praise and glory and blessing, because you are so eternally gracious to sinners. In Jesus' name, we thank you, the Savior of sinners. Amen. Second Samuel 7, the chapter before us, contains a poignancy and profundity which we could easily overlook in our rush to the more racy and intriguing aspect of David's career in the Bathsheba incident. But before we examine David's fall in chapter 11, we need to pause and soak in the drama, the divine drama of chapter 7. God's action here is remarkable. 
not only in view of what we know is coming in 2 Samuel 11, but in view of the multiplicity of heart-stirring images which he reveals in these verses. There is a richness, a deep richness arising here from the kingdom of David, richness which will echo and re-echo down through the ages in the voice of psalmists, prophets, evangelists, and apostles. There is a profusion of biblical, theological, or redemptive historical imagery here, a profusion which will be more wonderful as we trace it through the pages of subsequent revelation. This chapter draws you into the circle of eternity, into the arena of God himself and the profound drama of the divine relationship. You and me in relation with God himself, even as David is drawn into relation with God himself. I invite you to identify with the divine and heavenly relationship revealed to you by this chapter and the fullness of this chapter as revealed to you by the fullness of time. Let's begin with some narrative features of this text or of this chapter, ascertaining in the first place what is the scene or the setting or the location of this narrative. Art? Where is the scene? Jerusalem. The location on camera is Jerusalem. And the occasion for this scene. No, okay. Verse 1. The occasion is that God has given David rest from his enemies. He is, at least temporarily, at peace in Jerusalem. Now the plot, K and P. David wants to build a house for the ark, and I like the way Kay expressed it, a permanent structure. That is correct because the ark has been contained within a tent heretofore. And the dramatic conflict in our narrative schema, we always have 
conflict in a dramatic progression. So where is the dramatic conflict in this narrative? To the plot, David says what? Okay, what's David's voice with respect to the plot? When he says, here, I am living in a palace, he was living better than God's ark. So he said, the plot, he wants to build a house for the tent, for the ark of God. What does Nathan say to the plot? Go ahead. Nathan says yes to the plot. Where is the dramatic conflict? God says no. All right, there's where your tension arrives in the narrative. Conflict is with David's aspirations and God's annulment of those aspirations, and the chapter is going to unfold out of that drama. And the dramatic resolution, the resolution to the conflict in this narrative? Marge? Very good. You're, you're, you're on the right track. The resolution is the David-God relationship. The resolution will occur in how David is related to God and God related to David. All right, let's note here, as a footnote, Nathan's appearance. This is the the initial appearance of the prophet Nathan in the David narrative. And it matches his final appearance in the David narrative. David at rest in his house in Jerusalem. First appearance, 2 Samuel 7. Final appearance, 1 Kings 1. And sandwiched in between Nathan's first and final appearance, sandwiched in between is Nathan's appearance when David was not at rest, when David was restless with lust for Bathsheba. Very interesting framework for the appearance of Nathan, who pops into the David narrative and then disappears, comes into the narrative in the Bathsheba incident, then disappears, and then finally appears on David's deathbed, in Bathsheba's company, and then disappears again. Any questions about the narrative paradigm? Let's then move on to the structure of this chapter. There is a literary frame here, and I'll let you scan for a moment and see if you can identify it. There is a literary frame. Uh, 
That's enough time for scanning. <laughs> Anybody want to risk their reputation? It's actually a very small part of the chapter. Art, did you have some suggestion? Your eyes came up there for a moment. Was that an all-knowing eye? It's vague eye-opening. All right. A series of conversations. A series of conversations. That's an interesting suggestion, but that's not the literary frame. That is a structural device, and we'll talk about that in a minute. You got one out of two. Verse four is part of a narrative frame, but not verse 17. <laughs> no cigar, okay, although I don't know that that would tempt you. <laughs> right, look backwards from verse four. How about David's house? Not quite. Verse 1 and, and also at the end of the... Uh, okay, Rich has given us verse 1, and whether he knows it or not, he's landed on the target, on the bullseye. All right, notice how verse 1 begins, and notice how verse 4 begins. Some of your versions may have them reading exactly alike. It came about... That is actually the narrative portion of this chapter. Everything else, as Art pointed out, is dialogue or speech. It is not actual actual narrative device. So we have a very small narrative unit here framed by, in the Hebrew, the exact same word. It came about, or and it came about or now it came about. And you will notice in all your English translations that the phrase it came about is exactly alike in verse 1 and verse 4. It appears then to be symmetrical, and the fact that the same Hebrew word is used at the beginning of each verse would seem to endorse the judgment that there is exact parallel symmetry here. However... Some Bibles, and my all-time favorite, the New American Standard, translates verse 4, but it came about and destroys the symmetry. In other words, according to the New American Standard translators and the translators of some other versions of the English Bible, there is an asymmetrical relationship between verse 1 and verse 4, an antithetical relationship. And that is a correct insight into the translation of the original Hebrew. Why? Because in verse 4, it is apparent that David is out of sync with God. So that verse 1 which appears to suggest that David is in sync with God, is antithetically contradicted by God himself in verse 4 when he begins to speak. The but is adversative and is an accurate rendering of the Hebrew, even though the Hebrew is precisely the same. 
So here we have an insight into a contextual translation. That is, we look at the context of what is going on in a passage and it helps us more accurately translate a Hebrew or a Greek word or phrase. So verses 1 to 4 are a narrative unit on account of the literary frame of the phrase it came about. But it is a literary unit which has a antithetical paradigm. Now, after verse 4, what do we find? Art, this is your department. Well, this is a conversation in particular. Uh, the Lord speaking All right, we have, uh, first of all, a speech by God, do we not? Verses 5 through 16 are a, uh, a speech by God. In fact, the longest continuous speech by God since he spoke to Moses in the Pentateuch. It's kind of interesting that here, as David, uh, as God encounters David in this chapter, uh, he gives his longest uh, commentary or his longest remark in Revelation to uh, his, uh, his, uh, his, his servant. Then what do we have? David's response, very good. In verses 18 through 29, we have David's response to God's speech. It is, in fact, what kind of a response? It is a prayer. Notice that David's response to God in prayer form composed of two subsections. The first, verses 18 to 24, is a thanksgiving section. Here, David remembers the past acts of God and gives thanks for them, what God has done for him and for his house in time past. The second part of this prayer is in verses 25 to 29, and is in fact a prayer petition where David beseeches God to continue to act in the future, graciously, kindly, and benevolently for him and his house. So, David prays with thanksgiving to begin, and then for petition for God's continued blessing in the future. In our little narrative frame, we pointed out that the adversative in verse 4 underscores the fact that God says no to David's intent. David was out of sync in verses 1 to 4. But here in verses 18 to 29, we have David in sync with the Lord's intent. And not only is it apparent from the way he responds, but it is apparent from the symmetry of the language with which he responds. Let's notice what the vocabulary in David's prayer indicates. I'm not going to give you all of these, but I want you to notice, for example, four phrases. Let's begin with the phrase servant. David's self-reference to himself as 
God's servant occurs in seven of the 12 verses from 18 to 29. You can go through and list them. I want you to note, if you will, if you will, verse 20, where it occurs, as well as verse 19, and it continues throughout that section. David denominates himself, calls himself God's servant. Will you look at verses 5 and 8? How does God denominate David as his servant? The symmetry of vocabulary, the symmetry of language indicates that David is now in sync with God's declaration. Okay, Notice how the vocabulary symmetrically reinforces itself to underscore the theological point that David is not fighting God's declaration. He is submitting to it gladly and graciously. Second uh, term to, to note, the word forever, which appears in verse 24, verse 25, verse 26, and finally the last word in verse 29. All right, so David is using this term forever or Unto eternity as it is in the literal Hebrew, ad olam, or ad la olam, unto eternity, or up to eternity, or until eternity, however you want to render it. It has various nuances. Notice verses 13 and 16. The word forever, ad olam, or ad olam, appears also in those verses. Once again, David repeating, or recalling, or rehearsing, or endorsing the vocabulary of God as God reveals himself to him in his uh, speech. The next word, the word established in verse 26. That is a symmetrical repetition of the word established in verse 16. And finally, the word house, which appears repeatedly in verses 18, 19, 25, 26, 27, 29. And you will notice its symmetrical relationship to the term house in verse 11. 13 and 16. All right, there are other vocabulary parallels or symmetries. Once again, the theological point is that these dialogic units demonstrate a symmetrical relationship between the Lord and David. The relational vector is in sync. God speaks David responds to God's speech with thanksgiving and with expectation as well as with submission. It is as if we hear the echo of the boy Samuel when God calls to him out of the dark and Samuel says, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. David having the same attitude 
derivatively here. The Lord has spoken and David listens thankfully and expectantly. All right, any questions about the overall structure? We have a small narrative frame, one to four. We have God's speech, five to 16, and we have David's response to that speech in prayer, verses 18 to 29. We have a little small narrative note in verse 17, which is a kind of transitional device between the two speeches of God, the two speeches on God on the one hand and David on the other. Yes, Margaret? Uh, why did you not include the uh, established in verse 13? Is that different in the Hebrew or what? No, I was just picking out uh, some of them. I, w- I wasn't being exhausted, but you're right to note that it also appears in verse 13. And there are other words, as if you want to look back at it later and, and kind of isolate the other vocabulary, there are a number of other terms which are also reflective of the symmetry between God's speech and David's response. All right, let's now move on to theological motifs and attempt to identify some of uh, these uh, motifs or themes, beginning with verse 3 and also noting verse 9. How would you label the theological motif that is present in verse 3? God's presence. I want that in one word. That is a manual theology. That is an Emmanuel motif. Very good. And as a God with him, or God with you, or God with us, as an Emmanuel, and all the permutations of that in Hebrew, uh, it carries with it the rich meaning which we see in the light of Matthew's Christmas narrative, particularly Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, where Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us, in acknowledgement of the Emmanuel prophecy of Isaiah 7.14. But more than the Isaiah prophecy in the drama of that chapter in the Isianic gospel, if we can call it that. Chapter 8 of Isaiah, verses 8 and 10, also declares the Emmanuel name and becomes part of the unfolding story of the pattern of Emmanuel in the history of redemption. A virgin shall conceive a broken and scattered people shall hear, and they shall hear Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah 8, verse 10. Notice what is happening with this theological motif, this revelation to David, this disclosure of God himself to David. David is being drawn into the circle of Emmanuel, 
David is being drawn into relationship with Emmanuel. And so the Emmanuel theological motif draws us into the drama of David and the unfolding of that drama to great David's greater son. Number two, second theological motif in verse five, and you will also find it in verse eight. What theological motif do you identify there? Art, your head is nodding in. You're going to start nodding your head. You know, I know you're not sleeping. <laughs> what do you see there? I see um, God's communication, God's word. Mm. Marge, what's the word? What's the theological theme there? What's the key word? Anyone? Thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. No. Shepherd? No. Go and tell. Verse 5. I'm sorry. Yes, verse 5. Pardon? Yes, servant. Servant. Which is also repeated in verse 8. My servant David. It's the servant motif. This is servant theology. Whose servant is David? He is the servant of of. He is the servant of the Lord. And how do you say that in Hebrew? Ebed Yahweh. You only get half of it, Rich. (laughs) Ebed Yahweh. (laughs) All right, now, the servant of the Lord motif is a very important concept in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Isaiah. And so that Hebrew phrase, Ebed, E-B-E-D, Ebed, sometimes spelled E-B-E-D-H, Ebed Yahweh, Y-A-H-W-E-H. Ebed Yahweh is a terminus technicus uh, for this concept. Servant of the Lord. David is denominated God's servant. He is an Ebed Yahweh. He is a servant of the Lord. The rich association of those in Scripture who are called the servant of the Lord echoes through this description. Abraham in Genesis 26, 24. Moses in Deuteronomy 34, verse 5, and many other places. David here, and that quintessential servant of the Lord who emerges from the songs of Isaiah the so-called servant songs of Isaiah. He who is the elect and chosen of the Lord in whom he delights. Isaiah 42, verse 1. He before whom kings and princes shall bow down. Isaiah 49, verse 7. Yet one who gives his back to the smiters 
and his cheeks to those who pluck out the hair. Isaiah 50, verse 6, who is despised and rejected, smitten of God and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Isaiah 53, verse 3, 4, and 7. You know the Isaiah 53 passage. You know it as a prophecy of the coming of Christ, as the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8 came to know it because Philip explained it to him. But that passage is part of a concatenation of servant songs in Isaiah's dramatic prophecy. It does not stand alone. It is part of an unfolding drama of the presentation of God's servant who not only suffers as he does in verse in chapter 53, but who is gloriously elect of God in chapter 42 and the one before whom the nations will bow down in chapter 49. And so there are the servant song chapters of Isaiah, 42, 49, 50, and 53, actually the end of 52 and 53, the famous Abed Yahweh of Isaiah, servant of the Lord of Isaiah. And the scholarly debate that continues to uh, stir over who he is, because, of course, in the scholarly world, he isn't Jesus can't be Jesus. Isaiah could never have seen Jesus, right? Isaiah is a man of his own time, just like you and I. We can't see 700 years ahead, so he couldn't either. Therefore, the identity of Isaiah's servant has to be found somewhere else than in Jesus. The New Testament people may have thought he was Jesus, but that doesn't tell us what Isaiah thought he was. Was he the nation of Israel? Was he Isaiah himself? Was he Cyrus, whom God calls his chosen in the book of Isaiah? And so you have a plethora of suggestions from the scholarly world whose liberal presupposition is that there is no such thing as supernatural prophecy, period. The Bible is a human book, merely and only. Its horizon is no higher or wider than yours. The Ethiopian eunuch was a fool. Philip was a fool. He didn't have any right to say what Isaiah 53 meant. He was only taking a passage and imposing it upon the Christian culture of his day. In our Christian culture, we can take passages and impose them on our context to fit our religious aspirations, or convictions. Homosexuality is fine, you see. You see how it works? Because there is no finality to any word of Scripture. It is all contextual human opinion. You want to understand how your mainstream world thinks about the Bible, how your mainstream media thinks about the Bible, the Brit Hume incident just recently. You want to know how the broader, wider world thinks about the book you revere 
you must understand the liberal mind. Oh, you say, I don't have time for that. They will insinuate themselves into your arena and they will do what they are doing with your nation, what they are doing with your community, what they are doing with your health care. They will insinuate yourself, themselves into your arena and they will take over your life. You cannot oppose your enemy unless you understand him. This doesn't mean you have to be a seminary professor or take seminary courses, but nonetheless, you ought to be aware of what's underneath the issues of the liberalism of the age in which you live. And what's underneath it is primarily a hatred of the word of God. They despise it. And so they will reduce it. (coughs) David is drawn into the circle of a servant of the Lord. In 2 Samuel 7, he is brought into relationship with the Ebed Yahweh. Number three. The third theological theme here is in verse 7 and also implicitly in verse 8. How would you label this theological motif? It is the shepherd motif. Very good, Kay. It is shepherd theology. So we reflect here for a moment on the Latin word for shepherd. Margaret, do you remember? Anybody remember the Latin word for shepherd? Ling? The Romans have shepherds. Now, what kind of a comment is that? How much Virgil have you read for crying out loud? Caesar. The pastoral imagery of Virgil? Come on. Well, yes, the Latin word for shepherd is pastor. Though the pastoral image here, one who tends and cares for the flock, who pastures the sheep, even as he follows them, verse 8 of our text, and that rich image unfolds, as we noted, When we traced the Lord as shepherd motif, when we considered 2 Samuel 5 on December 10th last year, lecture 13 in this series, if you have forgotten that already, it's on the audio stream and you can dial it up on the Internet and listen to it again. God himself, as the chief shepherd and pastor of his sheep, David is drawn into the circle of the shepherd Lord. The fourth theological motif is in verse 12, also in verses 13 and 16. How would you label this motif?
Your head's not going up anymore. Art. Are you just uh, playing it safe out there? Me? No, no, Art. I pick on you later, Cheryl. Oh, but since you just freshly arrived, Carol? Kingdom. The kingdom. The kingdom motif or kingdom theology. Very good. And once again, the rich association of God's lordship and rule unfolds from the Hebrew monarchy to the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God revealed in the New Testament. And the king of that kingdom, he is the Lord's anointed. The Lord's anointed who rules with justice and with equity. Is not this kingdom made manifest in its ultimate disclosure? No violence in that kingdom. Rather, perfect peace. No enemies in that kingdom, all of whom have been banished. Rather, perfect fellowship, perfect communion. No curse in that kingdom. Rather, consummate blessing. David is drawn into the circle of God's kingdom and God's anointed king. And finally, the fifth motif in verse 13 and also in verse 16. What do you extract there as a theological motif? The forever motif. Or give me a word for forever. Oh, you know me so little. Eschatology. That's the word we want. Forever and eschatology are synonyms. And consequently, here we have an eschatological motif, the forever feature of biblical revelation, the eternal feature of biblical revelation, the eternity feature, as Voss describes it, of biblical revelation. God's disclosure to those in the temporal arena of what is present in his non-temporal or eschatological arena. Never-ending duration, everlasting extension, a timeless existence and reality as timeless as himself. Chew on that for a moment. A dimension as timeless as himself opened up to you, a creature. This rich display of eternal realities stretches from creation to consummation. It sheds its light down upon and into every era of the history of redemption from Adam's fall to Christ's return. 
the penetration of the eternal into the temporal directs the life of the believer to God himself and his everlasting life, his everlasting glory. And it is there from Adam's fall to the second coming. Eschatology, the forever feature of Old and New Testament revelation, is the rich, abundant disclosure, self-disclosure of God's own dimension. A disclosure which lifts the believing heart out of the temporal into the substance of the eternal and folds that believer into the forever of the ever-living triune God. David, in 2 Samuel 7, is drawn into the eschatological circle, the circle of eternity, the forever dimension that lies beyond the temporal and is the real dimension of God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, this chapter is often labeled God's covenant with David. You may even find that heading in your own Bible that you hold in your hand. But as you skim the verses of 2 Samuel 7, you do not find the word covenant in the text. How then has the label covenant with David been attached to this chapter? It's not in the words of the text itself, therefore, as somebody just imposed it as a neat little header for English Bible readers. Well, let's turn to chapter 23, 2 Samuel 23, verse 5. And as you read over that verse, you will notice that David himself labels this revelation in 2 Samuel 7 as an everlasting covenant. What can we substitute for everlasting? Eschatological, an eschatological covenant, because it has the feature of eternity which is the character of the feature of God's own reality. Now in Psalm 89, verses 3, 28, and 34 of that psalm, there is mention made of this covenant in 2 Samuel 7, a psalm which also contains motifs and imagery from this earlier historical narrative, namely chapter 7 of Second Samuel. 
fact, the label or the heading on the top of Psalm 89 in some of your Bibles is the Lord's covenant with David. It is a psalm emboldening and expressing and explicating what we find in 2 Samuel 7. And finally, Psalm 132, verse 12, also mentions the covenant which God has sworn to David. Hence, although the term covenant does not appear in the text of 2 Samuel 7, on the basis of our Protestant and Reformed principle that Scripture interprets Scripture, I cite the Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 1, paragraph 9, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself on the basis of our Protestant and Reformed principle that Scripture interprets Scripture. We may concur with those who have labeled 2 Samuel 7, especially verses 5 to 16, as God's covenant with David. 2 Samuel 23 says so. Psalm 89 says so, Psalm 132 says so, so even though 2 Samuel 7 does not say so, in explicit terms, we can regard the other passages as interpreting this passage infallibly, as the Westminster Confession points out. Question, Link. I mean, are there people who do not think this is a covenant? Um, there aren't too many, but there are some purists who argue that because the term covenant is not here, that later theology has actually constructed the idea, though there's not a covenant form here, in their opinion. That's a minority voice, but nonetheless, there are such voices out there. I'm only addressing the issue in order to make you think about how other passages can help you interpret and other passages, even vocabulary that doesn't occur there. Art. Several other passages that illustrate that this is a covenant that God is making with David. Yes. But couldn't you also, just by the definition of the word covenant, look to see whether God is promising things that are equivalent to the definition of a covenant? You could. Uh, Promises don't always mean covenants. Uh, And so uh, you've got your work cut out for you there. Uh, You don't have a kind of standard covenant formulary, which you find particularly in Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5. Uh, Nonetheless, you could make out a case. Uh, I will attempt to make a case later on this evening on the basis of relational vocabulary. And I will do that as you look back to my previous lecture on covenant between David and Jonathan, I will do that on the basis of what I regard as the fundamental principle of biblical covenant. Vernon? Doesn't this, in one respect, parallel the covenant God had with Abraham? Is it one-way covenant versus a two-way covenant, which is normal interpretation of covenant? Well, uh, I don't want to get into a discussion of one-way versus two-way covenants, and one of the reasons I don't is because I'm a Calvinist, and I believe that all covenants are one-way because God initiates them, uh, which raises the question of what happens when a person is brought into a covenant. 
And uh, the disagreements or the misunderstandings of classic Calvinism on that point are creating all kinds of difficulties in our day simply because people don't know Augustine, they don't know Calvin, they don't know primary sources like Puritan covenant theology. So when we talk about two-way covenants, do we really mean that somebody makes an agreement with God and extracts from God some kind of obligation on his part? Is that what we mean when we're talking about a two-way covenant? The creature enters into an agreement with God and says, God, I'll do this, you do that. Huh? Is that what we're talking about, Vern? No. In the normal ter- interpretation of a statement of covenant is a two-way covenant. However, God makes one-way covenants. And that, that's what he did with Abraham, and that's what he's doing here. He's made a one-way covenant. If he makes a covenant, he always says, I will be your God and how does he how does he complete the statement? And how do you become God's people when you hate him? By nature, you hate him, or don't you? Or were you born loving God? No one seeks after God. No one. None righteous, no one. So here you are. How are you going to respond to God if it's only a one-way covenant? Or if it's a bilateral covenant and you're going to respond, how are you going to do it if you're dead in trespasses and sin? I can't. You can't. That's exactly right. You can't. Unless he makes you able. Unless he makes you his people. His person. Unless he does for you what you are unable to do for yourself. Unless he says, I will be your God And he says, you will be my people because I'll make you my people. Where's the bilaterality in that? God initiates it. God transforms your heart to respond to it. The Holy Spirit enters into your life to support that transformation so that you say, yes, God, I will be one of your servants, one of your people. That sounds like divine initiative and monergism from beginning to end to me. Bilateral covenants. All right. Um, I don't mean to minimize what Vern is recognizing in the history of the discussion. But I want us to think very carefully about the tradition of Augustinian depravity and total inability, Calvinistic depravity and total inability, and Puritan depravity and total inability, I want us to think very carefully about the nature of a human sinner's will. You may know nothing about Jonathan Edwards, but he is the greatest exponent of what happens to the human sinner's will in a state of nature and in a state of grace. He is better than Augustine. He is better than Calvin, though he stands on their shoulders. Well, you see, the issue here is when God extends a covenant invitation to a sinner, he does not by any stretch of the mind imply that that sinner's will is capable of responding to that covenant invitation. Don't we believe in total depravity and total inability? 
that the sinner by nature is totally unable to respond to God's grace unless he makes them able, unless he changes their will, unless he transforms their nature, unless he regenerates their will bound in trespasses and sin, a bond slave to iniquity, unless he acts to enable them to accept Christ and grace. Consequently, whenever God extends a covenant offer, he extends to us our obligation. But that obligation does not carry any implication of our ability to conform with it. When he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, he is simply specifying your obligation. Are you able to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ without the Holy Spirit changing your heart? Without the grace of God transforming your will? Without your will being broken out of its enmity and hostility to Almighty God to accept Christ and grace by the renewal of the grace of God at work in your life? That is what the covenant of grace is all about. God doing in your life what you are totally unable and completely impotent to do for yourself. Lazarus in his tomb. Lazarus come out. Is Lazarus able to come out? Lazarus come out. And Lazarus lays dead in his tomb until Jesus extends the power of life to Lazarus and makes him alive from the dead so that he does come out. He makes Lazarus's will alive from the dead, which is what Paul says about you in Ephesians 2. And so consequently, the covenant does not reduce the monergistic work of God. Your response to any covenant offer is dependent upon God making you responsive. And so you say, in my natural state, Lord, I am totally and completely unable and unwilling. You must make me willing. In the day of your power, Psalm 110 in the King James translation. And so you plead for God to give you a new heart, to give you a heart that is willing. You plead with God to do what only he can do in Christ by his grace. And you acknowledge your inability and plaintively, poignantly plead for him. To raise you from the dead. Even as Paul in Ephesians 2 says. You who were dead in trespasses and sin. He has quickened. Made alive. In Christ Jesus. The obligation. Does not imply. Ability to perform the obligation. It only lays your duty upon you. So let us not confuse 
demand with capability, demand with ability. That is not Augustinian Christianity. That is not Calvinistic Christianity. That is not Reformed Christianity because no sinner has any ability to respond to his duty or obligation before Almighty God. Only as God gives grace to perform the condition is any sinner saved and changed. That's classic Calvinism. That's classic Pauline theology. That's classic theology of the Bible. Can the leopard change his spots? Completely unable. Does it mean that the leper can't be demanded or obligated? That you can't command the leopard to do something? I'm being a little facetious there, but yes, you can command duty, but God performs the duty commanded because it is all of him. It is all of his mercy. It is all of his grace. It is not of your willing. Leave your will to itself and you will remain unwilling, as Jesus says, you will not come to me that you may have life. And you'll stay that way until God gives you a new life, a new new will and a new heart. Since we have determined that there is a covenant in this chapter, I want to remind you of our previous discussion of covenant theology in the fourth lecture in this series on 1 Samuel 20, which was delivered on October 1st, 2009. In that presentation in which we explored the covenant formula of the Bible, namely, you will be my people and I will be your God, In that presentation, we enter into the relational aspect of the covenantal formula. We are in relation with God as his people. He is in relationship with us as our God. All of this is due to his unmerited and undeserved grace, so that the relational dimension of God's covenant is graciously motivated established and preserved. There is no relationship on our part inaugurated by our works. For our works disqualify us from any relationship with God on account of their natural and actual demerit. God's covenantal relationship with us must graciously remove our demerit so that we may indeed be his people, as he is indeed our God by grace. As soon as Adam falls in sin, all notion of merit perishes. As soon as Adam falls in sin, all notion of merit perishes. As soon as we fall in Adam's sin, all notion of merit perishes. 
As soon as we fall in Adam's sin, all notion of merit perishes. No notion of merit from Adam's fall to the second coming is applicable to a man, woman, or child conceived and born in original sin, actually involved in everyday sin. No sinner at any point in the history of the Bible is able to merit blessing or reward from God. That is the Calvinistic and Reformed doctrine of total inability, which is the Siamese twin of the Calvinistic and Reformed doctrine of total depravity, and they are inseparable Siamese twins. Sinful depravity does not merit blessing or reward because sinful depravity makes the sinner unable, totally unable to merit any blessing or reward from God. In view of every sinner's total depravity and total inability in every era of the Bible's history, from Adam's fall to the second coming, any blessing from God must be based on his wonderful grace, his abundant undeserved favor, his relational and ever gracious covenant with sinners such as we are. It must be all of grace because we are totally depraved. It must be all of grace because we are totally unable. It must be all of grace and not of works, because it must be all of God in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit for every sinner from Adam's fall to the second coming. Grace, not merit. Grace, not works. God's grace, not my deeds. And so, the gracious character of God's covenant is clear because he establishes a relationship with sinners out of his free grace. And that gracious relationship is revealed once again to David here in 2 Samuel 7. God graciously enters into a relationship with David here in our text. And the theological motifs which we scoped out earlier this evening from this chapter are all anchored in a relational dynamic, a gracious relational dynamic. If God is Emmanuel to David, God with him, is that not a relational dynamic? Is that not a gracious relationship that God would condescend to be with David? Surely we would not suggest that David merited the Emmanuel presence of God, would we? Ah, God with us explodes with grace, explodes and unfolds with glorious, unmerited grace. So for David, so for us, Emmanuel, 
is a pledge of grace, not merit. Never. If David is denominated my servant by God, is this not a precious relational dynamic that David, as we, by nature, servants of sin and bond slaves of Satan, would be set free to be called the servant of the Lord. What a wonderful, gracious relationship that is. Is it not due to God's grace that David is called his servant, that God condescends to regard David as his bond slave? Surely we would not suggest that David merited the relationship servant of the Lord, would we? Oh, my servant, servant of the Lord, explodes with grace, explodes with glorious, unmerited grace. So for David, so for us. If David is called the shepherd of Israel, is this not a precious relational dynamic that God would appoint a pastor to shepherd his people, to be related not only to God himself as the chief shepherd, but be related to the flock of God as their under-shepherd. What a wonderfully gracious relationship that is. Surely it is God's free grace that places David as shepherd of Israel. Surely it is God's sovereign grace that draws David, God, draws God to condescend to give David his own title, his very own title. The Lord is the shepherd of his flock. Graciously giving David his own title and his role in leading, protecting, and defending his sheep. Surely we would not suggest that David merited this relationship, shepherd of God's people. Surely we would not suggest that that was a meritorious title, would we? Ah, shepherd of Israel explodes with grace, explodes with glorious, unmerited grace. So for David, so for us. If God pledges to establish the kingdom of David, is this not a marvelous relational dynamic that God would mirror his kingdom in the kingdom of David. Surely that is due to a gracious condescension on the part of the king of kings to enter into a kingdom relationship with David the sinner. Surely it is God's grace that places David as king in his kingdom. We would not suggest that David merited elevation to king of Israel that somehow he had earned the right to be king after God's own heart? Surely we would not suggest 
that this king and kingdom relationship was due to David's worthiness, would we? Would we? Ah, oh, the kingdom of David explodes in grace, explodes in glorious, unmerited grace. So for David, so for us. And if God will be eschatologically identified with the house and throne of David, is this not, once again, a wonderful relational dynamic? That God would establish David's kingdom forever is a pledge of an eternal relationship, an everlasting relationship. Surely, surely it is God's precious grace that condescends to David forever. An eschatological relationship as the eschatological being who enters into that relationship. Surely it is God's free grace that establishes the throne of David forever. A never-ending permanence to the kingdom of David is as the never-ending permanence of the kingdom of God himself. Who, who could ever merit an eternal permanence with God? Who could ever merit an everlasting duration before God? Who, what sinner could ever deserve the eschatological dimension of never-ceasing glory. Surely we would not suggest that any sinner merits eternity, would we? Surely we would not imagine that any sinner is worthy of an eschatological relationship, would we? Ah, the forever feature of the Davidic covenant explodes with grace, explodes with glorious, unmerited grace, explodes into the eschaton by grace and only by grace, never, never by merit. So for David. So for us. I have labored these theological motifs not only in the interest of their relational component, but more importantly in the interest of their gracious aspect. Each one arises from a relationship with God. Each one arises from the grace of God. Each one of the theological motifs arises from the free, undeserved, unmerited favor of God. And so this Davidic covenant, like all covenants since Genesis 3.15, is a covenant of grace, a covenant of of grace, every covenant since the fall, a covenant of grace, a wonderful, precious revelation of God's grace 
in covenanting, condescending to sinners. In summary, then, God's covenants are relational, drawing sinners into relationship with himself. And since it is God who initiates the relationship, God's covenants are all since Adam's fall, covenants of grace. And we have explored several relational motifs in this chapter, 2 Samuel 7. Emmanuel, servant of the Lord, shepherd of Israel, kingdom of David, forever relation, theological motifs, relational in character, graciously bestowed. And yet, and yet, we have not touched on the most poignant, the most profound relational paradigm revealed in this chapter. I have saved the best for last. Paradigm of father and son which is disclosed in verse 14. Let us first ask, why is there no complementary relational paradigm in the servant motif? Here in verse 14, we have father-son, complementary relational paradigm. Why don't we have in verse 8, or verse 5, complementary relational paradigm, master-servant. Why don't we? Why no full complementary relational paradigm in the one case when there is a full relational paradigm in the case of father-son? You may perhaps answer, it is implicit in the servant motif. In verses 5 and 8. And I reply, but master is not explicit in verses 5 and 8, as father is explicit in verse 14. And so implication will not solve the fact that father-son is different. And servant without master is not the same. So we need some other explanation, do we not? as to why there is not full complementarity in the servant motif. Or let us in the second place ask why there is no complementary relational paradigm in the shepherd motif. Here in verse 14, we have father-son, full relational complement. Why don't we have in verse 7, shepherd-flock? You may argue that verse 8 specifies sheep, But this is a historical note. David did follow his father's sheep in the hills of Bethlehem. That is true. However, the complementary relational aspect is not contained here as it is frequently in the Psalms. For instance, we are his sheep, etc. And it is not here. Only the shepherd is the aspect of the relational Paradigm. 
The father-son tandem in verse 14 is not paralleled by full complementarity of shepherd-sheep tandem in verse 7. So we still need some other explanation for the poignancy and full complement of the father-son paradigm in the 14th verse, do we not? As we answer our question, let us pause to ask if there is any possible antecedent explanation for the use of the father-son motif here. And by antecedent, I mean redemptive historical antecedent. Is there any other place where in the history of redemption, prior to 2 Samuel 7, God may regard Israel as his son? Where is it? No. Go down, Moses. Go down, Moses. And tell Pharaoh to let my people go that my son may serve me. Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23. Link it to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Out of Egypt have I called my son, duplicated in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. And you're beginning to do biblical theology. You're beginning to see the paradigm of the unfolding history of redemption. And yet, in that Exodus 4 passage, there is nothing said of God being father to his son, Israel. If we are correct to see an antecedent, suggestive antecedent in 2 Samuel 7, 14, back in Exodus 4, 22 and 23, we have only removed the question one step further backwards. Hence, we ask once more, What is the origin of the sun motif in Exodus 4? If we have the sun motif in 2 Samuel 7 and we have a previous sun motif in Exodus 4, how did God come forth with a revelation of this nature? How do we account for the origin of this motif? Aha, it is anchored in human relationships, human fathers and human sons, human paternity and human filiation. Therefore, it arises out of the human relationship. No, it arises out of adoptive relationship, parents and children or fathers adopting sons who are not their own naturally. It is an adoption category. Or is there something else that we're missing?
We come back to the question, what is it that accounts in the mind of God for the revelation of the term sonship to his people or to this full complementary tandem father-son here in 2 Samuel 7, 14. What is the explanation for its origin, for its source? Why not say, master servant? Why not say, shepherd flock? Why say, father, son? Do you not pause to ask yourself that question, where does it come from? Where is its origin? From what does it arise in the mind of God? And you just dash off human paternity or human relationships. Is it that blasé? Though I don't regard my two sons as blasé products. But how is it that here God relates himself to the house of David in language of father, son? How? Where? Why? From out of what paradigm? May I suggest the ontological? May I suggest the paradigm of the being of God himself? And what do I mean by that? I mean an ontological father and an ontological son. I mean a father who is God and a son who is God. And with Athanasius' creed, I don't mean to minimize the Holy Spirit as God, but we're looking at this tandem. May I suggest that what lies behind this revelation to David Sometime around 1000 BC, may I suggest the profundity of the triune Godhead as the basis of God himself saying to David, I will be a father to your son. And so we are driven into the profound mystery of God's eternal paternity and his eternal filiation of the Son.
the relation here which is revealed and disclosed to David draws him into the circle of the ontological Godhead. Now notice I did not say it draws him into being the ontological Godhead or being immersed in the ontological Godhead or destroying the creator-creature distinction. I did not say that. I said that he is drawn into the circle of the ontological Godhead as a creature. And to the extent that a creature can participate in the father-son relationship which exists from all eternity. Oh, you're talking about the adoption of sons and daughters. You're talking about us being brought into the household of God and made children of God by regeneration and faith through the grace of the Holy Spirit transforming us. But I ask you again, from whence does such a notion arise in Paul's thinking that we should be called the sons, and I don't want to leave the girls and the women out, and daughters of God, that we should be called the children of God? Where does it come from? from the profound relationship between God the Father and God the Son. That is where it arises. And when he places that label upon you, he places the label that belongs to his Son from all eternity. You are given possession of the name and title that belongs to the everlasting and eternally begotten Son of the Father who is endless in his generation, eternal in his filiation. And you have been granted the right to claim that name, son of my heavenly father, child of my father in heaven. Because the son of that heavenly father became a son of man that you a child of man can become a son, a child of God. Do you see what David was granted? He was granted a revelation and disclosure 
of a relationship so profound and intimate as to be the relationship of an eternal God the Father to an eternal God the Son. And this very God says to David, I shall be a father to you and your descendants shall be sons unto me. What wondrous grace is this, O my soul? And then, as if grace upon grace, each of those theological motifs are drawn into that ontological and revelational circle. Emmanuel is Son of God. Ebed Yahweh, servant of the Lord, is Son of God. Good shepherd of the flock of the Lord is Son of God. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of the Son of God. The eschatological feature is the eschatological character of the Son of God. Do you see what this chapter does? It draws David into the circle of identity between the Son of the Father and the richness of the motifs that are laid down there. Identity. Emmanuel is not only son of David. He is son of God. Very God, a very God. Ebed Yahweh is not only servant David. He is son of God. Eternal servant of the Lord. Shepherd of Israel is not only Davidic shepherd. He is son of God. Kingdom of David is not only David's kingdom. It is the kingdom of the son of God. The forever feature of the Davidic promises are not only Davidic promises. They are promises that are yea and amen in the Son of God. <clears throat> and they are yours. They are yours. Because you are sons and daughters of God. God with you. Emmanuel, the Son of God, Jesus. You, a servant of the Most High, because the Son of God is the eschatological servant and has bound you to his servanthood. You, under 
the good shepherd of the sheep, because the Son of God is the good shepherd. You brought into the kingdom of David because the Son of God is David's king and the source of his kingdom. And you belong to him. And it is forever that you belong to this kingdom, to this shepherd, to this servant, to this Emmanuel, because he is eternal God. Oh, the height and the depth and the length and the breadth and the revelation of God in Christ Jesus. His Son, Son of the Father, whom David knew, knew as a child of God. The depth that is here is the depth that can only be understood in the light of the ontology of God himself and the revelation of that ontological and eschatological dimension in the fullness of time. That's the riches that God has given to you in 2 Samuel 7. And would you not fall down on your knees and pray the prayer of David with thanksgiving and expectation for his glorious grace to have made you bastards that you are, sons of the Most High and precious children in his sight, eschatologically. Any questions or comments you may have? Let us drive the father-son motif back to its origin, into the very life of God himself, Father and Son. And let us then realize that we've been privileged to participate in that life and in that relational privilege, the relation between the Father and Son, to the extent that the creature is capable of participating in it, to the fullness of the glory of God in the glorification of a creature. God. I was just wondering, in light of all this, um, going back to this question of the covenants, there are some Reformed theologians who argue that after the fall, all covenants do include 
unconditional promises, but not all involved conditional promises, so that they would point, of course, to Genesis 9, there being a common grace covenant where God makes promises to the whole, you know, all humanity that as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest and so forth, but that he doesn't require a response, a conditional response of faith and obedience to all the recipients of those graces in order to receive those benefits. And then they apply such a category to David, but now in a redemptive sense, this Davidic covenant, so that there are only unconditional promises here, but once that promise is given to David, no conditional promises are there. In light of what you've said, do you agree with that, or would you say that no conditional promises are here, this is the covenant of grace, but they are only implicit in what's being made revealed to David uniquely, he is given a special revelation to himself that he is a recipient of the unconditional promise of the covenant of grace, whereas that revelation is not given to all members of the covenant of grace. And now there's that, let me emphasize the eschatological. I do think that the conditional aspects are implicit because of the relational nature of the covenant. Namely, if I begin with the fact that covenant is a relational formula that is always there, whether it is explicit or not, it's my challenge to perhaps draw out that conditionality or to subsume it under God's own gracious fulfilling of it. Here, I think when we look at God with David in the Emmanuel motif, it is also true that David is called to be with God. That's implicit, though it is not demanded or required. But I think it is part of the whole relational drama or dynamic that the full circle, not segmenting up these aspects, but seeing that the formula, I will be your God, you will be my people, is comprehensive. It is always a full circle pattern or paradigm. 